Hello everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. This is episode 74 of the History Voyager. I did an interview with a man named Jacob Edwards King. This is a fascinating interview that I find amazing. And the thing I find amazing about it is that there's something going on in Seattle that the media doesn't cover, or it it doesn't actually cover it correctly, in my judgment. We're all aware of the Chop and Chaz situation where approximately six blocks were basically uh, given over to protesters or rioters or whatever you want to call it. But we're not really aware, at least I wasn't really aware, of the wider context of that move so it's not an isolated area in Seattle as much as it is the festering sore on a gangrenous limb. And fellow podcaster Jacob Edwards King was kind enough to come on my podcast and basically talk about this. And we had what I think is a fairly honest and frank discussion among peer podcasters. And I hope you give it the basically the uh, attention it deserves. That said, I will always and forever plug my Venezuela podcasts, which are right now episode 72 and 69. Please give those a listen. And I'm going to link this video in the description, assuming YouTube hasn't taken it down yet. I want you to watch this video that I that he was kind enough to give me. It's it's really amazing what's um and I say amazing in a in a terrible way. It's really kind of horrifying and wrong-headed, I guess, what's what's going on up there in the northwest uh Seattle and I I don't know if this is happening in Portland as well, but it's it's sort of interesting and and terrible that you could basically crib a plot line from a television show, The Wire, and and think it would turn out well, at least in a in a sense. All right. Uh, with that said, this is my episode with Jacob Edwards King. Okay. As always, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. Bye bye. This call is now being recorded. Hello, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of History Voyager. This is episode 74. Before we get rocking, I just want to tell everybody about episodes 72 and 69 of the History Voyager. They have to do with the Venezuela coup. And I feel like I have a lot of listeners. And I just want to raise awareness of the situation going on in Venezuela as much as possible. Now, with that said, I have Jacob Edwards King here, and we're going to talk about the politics of Washington State. Now, let me give everybody a little bit of background. We're going to be talking about a video, which I will attempt to link in the description. He sent it to me. It deals with the uh, shop slash Chaz situation and some of the stuff that's not really talked about in the mainstream media, uh, or really any of the media outside of that video from, I believe, okay, 
let's not make it out like it's some weird thing. It's the local news agency, right? Local yeah, TV it's, news. It's the ABC affiliate local news. And it's from one of the journalists that's 20, 25 years. He's been a local journalist for that station, does all sorts of, you know, local news, kid, kid yeah. sports, all sorts of stuff. And so it's really like a, a documentary of, and what's called is the fight for the soul of Seattle. And, uh, We'll get the links for you, but if you just get that in YouTube, it should pull up for you, too. And it's right. really about the events that have happened to Seattle over the last decade or so. Well, okay. So why don't we, because I have a lot of listeners out of the country, So why, and also a lot of my American listeners are actually in the South. So why don't we talk about, so Seattle is Northwest. We all know that, or I know that. Um, but situated geographically. Yeah, so one of the things that really comes up, even inner U.S., is that the western states of the U.S. are bigger. Washington is a smaller state for the west, but it's bigger than most of the states on the east coast. Our cities are spread out, so we have sprawl cities. So, you know, if you're in Tokyo, which is a huge city, if you're in, you know, East Coast cities, they tend to be very condensed locations where the cities on the West Coast are like L.A. You have L.A. proper and then the, the, the urban part of L.A. and the next part in the region, and they just go all the way up and down the freeways out for miles. And so Seattle is, there's both Seattle proper, which is the city of, and then there's the greater Seattle region, which a bunch of communities are a part of. And so this documentary is really about Seattle city proper policy, and Seattle is situated on a, a, not a peninsula, but a long sort of narrow strip with the west being the Puget Sound, east being uh, Lake Washington, and then I tend to refer to Seattle into three parts. You have a southern part that has like the sports stadiums, the ports, more industrial stuff. You have a central downtown skyscraper core, and you have a north part that is more of the housing and malls and different stuff up there. And so I'll generally refer to Seattle in those three parts, especially discussing these issues that you have the southern third, the middle core, and the northern third. All right. So, okay. So the the reason I wanted to talk about it was because, you know, the first of all, to me, you have the far right and the far left and in Seattle or in Washington State. And that just seems like a toxic mix to me. A little bit. I mean, the politics of of Washington are different. So you're in Georgia, and it's suddenly become up for play, and so you get really polarizing politics. Washington has that. It's just 60-40, so Democrats control all of the branches of government and win basically every election, except for, you know, the jury-rigged ones where there's a certain amount. You know, they hold 40-ish percent of the, the houses of legislation. They never win the governorship. And so a lot of that is is somewhat distorted and somewhat not. So in Seattle's case, you have very far-left, ultra-left decisions because you have no counterparty to pull it back in. And you see a lot of things visually of a protest movement So here and then a counter-movement to that because, you know, especially in the cases of political issues, the people who are in eastern Washington, and I'll step back and explain a little bit of the politics, Seattle is blue, and the greater Seattle urban area is blue. And that is in King County, which is about 30 miles wide and about 15 miles up and down. 
even in King okay. County, only about the Seattle half of it is blue. The rest of the state is red. So you have a lot of people geographically who are very frustrated not having levers of government. So you get something on the left comes out from Seattle. It's usually very left. And then you get this clash reaction of people who are already charged, and especially in today's politics with Trump, who are, who are charged up and ready to rear for a political election. And so you see a lot of that, a protest in Olympia, which is our capital, or in Seattle as a reaction to something. And you tend to get that type of very, they don't play together, so they end up protesting against each other, basically. Okay. Um, I'm just going to Google the uh, a series of election maps, because I feel like Seattle, I mean, Washington State being a blue state, is kind of a, a newish thing, right? Um, so we had some close elections back in 2000, 2002, um, but it's been blue since the 80s, I would believe. So Washington back in the Reagan days was very much the blue Reagan Democrat. It had a lot of loggers. I mean, that's before the tech. So Washington back then was Boeing workers and loggers. It really wasn't the same city as it would have been today. And so... The growth of Washington has been huge. We get tons of people from California. You added Microsoft added to it, Amazon added to it. So now we're a giant tech city, which is very different than what it was back in the eighties. All right. And how long you how long was in Seattle area? I was in Seattle area for my entire life. I grew up in the rural part of King County at the base of the Cascades. Now it's basically a suburb, but when I was growing up, it was pretty rural. It was uh, one grocery store. It closes at night, 15 bars. It was a logging town. And then churches, Every everything was turned into a church on the weekends, including the bars for service. So that was the type of town it was when I grew up. By the time I moved to college, it's basically a suburb because it's on the I-90 track out of Seattle. Okay. So you, you just drive out, and it's a suburb that's a ways away. Right, because I mean, one of the things in in Metro Atlanta that that you see here, I mean, because I grew up here. I mean, my my mother, my people are from here. My mother's people are from here. My dad's people are are they're not really from here, but they're from close close enough by, I I suppose. So one of the things you you see a lot is this sense of disorienting change, right? Like, especially like if you, if I think back twenty years ago, right. Like, I feel like every 10 or 20 years, the big markers of changes in this, in this town. And I'm wondering if, if that's going on in Seattle too, or, or not, not as much. Seattle is, I mean, Washington is a con, and what people are screaming to is Seattle, right? People don't, people don't migrate hundreds or thousands of miles to live somewhere rural typically. So Seattle area has grown huge in the last 20 years. We have a constant stream, usually close to, and these are a little off the top of my head from memory, but it's usually close to 5 to 10% of the population added every year over year over year over year of people, typically from California, um, but other places in the country now that the tech stuff's so big pretty much everywhere. But, I mean, Seattle is, you know, you're saying your people are from there. It's not a lot of people that would live in Seattle that could say something like that, right? My parents moved to Seattle. Most of my friends' parents moved into Seattle during their lifetime. So it's not really a city with roots that are that old. Yeah, that's like that. 
That's not where most people are in Atlanta either, believe it or not. I'm actually pretty rare. <laughs> I'm not too surprised, but I mean, what I'm saying is we're all the other side of that. You know, there isn't really that many people who are there a really long time. Yeah, but it's, well, you know, and the fact, you know, historically Seattle's not as old as Atlanta, so there isn't that much of a history to be rooted. So it, it, see, I mean, Washington as a culture is people coming into it. Most people, you know, because it's out west anyway. It's out west yeah. anyway, so for sure. Um, all right. So I was just wondering if maybe some of the disoriented factors, you know, people get disoriented and so that's how they team up with whatever side they want to team up with. All right. Um, okay. So, so you sent me this video because I wanted to talk about Washington politics. You mm-hmm. sent me this video and nobody's seen it other than me and you. And the thing that I was amazed by was Seattle has an amazing drug problem, mm-hmm. or at least it seems like it does, and an amazing yeah. homeless problem. Yeah, and for me, it's always a struggle because the politics say homeless, right? But there's a bunch of facilities. There are homeless people like any city in Seattle, but the problem isn't that. The problem is addiction. So Seattle five years ago, ten years ago, was like any city in America with opioids is an issue, right? You have an opioid problem. There's probably that part of town. There, you know, it, it's a crisis across America. And so the leaders of Seattle decided to go with only left politics. So, and, and, and just to describe ways I tend to describe it is you have the left is the passion of the heart, right? The left things tend to be emotional, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean they tend to be chasing passions of the heart, and the right tends to be very systematized, very logical, very, here's here's the facts. And so in Seattle, all the powers of Democrats, Seattle has turned very left, and they have chased a very extreme version of progressive stuff. Whatever you could think of in the popular debate is the most extreme of it, they're probably trying it. Part of this was, even before Black Lives Matter protests, not using the police in any way, allowing people to camp on the street without ever removing them, allowing them to use drugs, allowing them to sell drugs and play in open sites, allowing them to essentially vandalize things around them without any real consequences. Let's, okay, when, okay, I know what you're talking about, you know what you're talking about. When we say drugs, we're not just talking about marijuana, are we? When we're talking heroin, no. we're talking Crack. And Washington State is a state where marijuana is legal for Washington state law. So you, there's pot stores you can go buy pot in Washington. This is opioids, right? So this is this is opioid drugs. They're derivatives, heroin. This is oxycotton. Yeah. People start in that chain. And I'm not somebody who's going to advocate that because you do marijuana, you end up on the street. Addiction is the same in a lot of ways, regardless of the substance. And people often view addiction as a human weakness, that the person on the street didn't try hard enough or somebody didn't push them hard enough to not fall into that track. And we don't treat it like a disease, right? So these people are in the throes of addiction on the street, in a tent, stealing to get their next high. And the policy is to wait until they hit rock bottom and they'll decide not to be an addict. And we'll buy pallets and we'll make tent cities for them, and we'll 
allow their RVs that are just drug dens to be there, and we really aren't going to have a police or security presence. And part of when you watch this this documentary, and I'm typically harsh on documentaries. I don't like distorted facts. I don't like uh, one element blown out of proportion. You can go and – I still can't think of the name – but there's a famous building in Seattle where it was the first skyscraper built like 70 years ago. And you can go up, and it's, it's small now in comparison, but you can view out to that south third of Seattle. And you can see that almost every street you look in the southerly direction from there has people in tents in the throes of addiction living on the sidewalk. Yeah. This is this is looking over our, our two pro sports stadiums, the entire port of Seattle, obviously that's fenced off where they can't be in that. But it gives you an idea of how big the south part of Seattle is. It's a whole right. industrial area, sports area. It's got other areas. And this isn't the limitation of it, but it's just all over. It's like driving past a third world country. You have, and it's not like they're nicely tented. It's just. And by the way, and by the way, folks, he, he's not exaggerating. I mean, when I saw the uh, the tent city, I mean, the first thing I thought was so that's a that actually answered a question because the first thing I thought was where where did all these tents actually come from? Like they stole you know, them. Okay. One of the common things is they break into garages and steal tents, and then uh, later the government would start buying and supporting them. Yeah, pretty much. If you lived in Seattle in in an area walking distance from these problems, and you had a tent or a bike, or valuable electronics, they were gone. And the police are going to come and fill a report out, and you're never going to get it. And that's the support you're going to get is not the addict in the community. I wonder if that's where, okay. Yeah, I wonder if, so how much, okay, so the video took the defund the police movement in Seattle specifically, Head on, like it took it on full bore. Yeah, I mean, and part there's a huge outfall of police officers. So we we've lost in the last six months 1,700 police officers from the police force or something like that, who are transferring to other places around. Anybody who can leave is a police officer talent flight from the city of Seattle right now, because in response to the Black Lives Matter protests, which is we're here and everywhere else, the the Council of Seattle immediately said that they're going to try to cut the police budget in half. So they included cutting things like the navigation program, which is in there, which was a program of teaming up police with social workers to in unison try to try to try to help lives in these situations. And they wanted to just cut it in half and they they claimed it was all extra overtime and different stuff that was fluff that they could cut, but just harshly cut the police in half. And this poses a real a real problem, right? Because yeah. With addiction, you have to understand that these people are in the throes of addiction. The idea that they haven't hit rock bottom, to me, is offensive in a way. They're on the street, half-starved, ODing, doing drugs. They're, they're in the nightmare that you can think of of drugs at rock bottom. But they're in the throes of addiction. Addicts aren't going to react logical. They're not going to be like, yeah. oh, well... I'm on the street, I guess I gotta give this up. They're in the throat. If they can get their next high, they're not going to stop. And so you have to, you have to do something to break the high 
so that the addict has a chance to be in recovery to make a decision. They can't make the decision until they're there. And so that's typically prison or treatment, and treatment's highly expensive. It's hard to support treatment at an epidemic level at this. And so you have to get them off the drugs so that they can be able to make the decision to not take the drugs. In the midst of the drug addiction, and the other thing is that these opioids aren't alcohol or marijuana. There, there's addiction that can come with that. But opioids rewrite your brain chemistry. So you're dealing with addiction and a rewrite of your very brain, and you're trying to break that while you're in the throes of it controlling you, and you're asking somebody to make the choice to suddenly cure themselves. And so it's, to me, it's almost insulting. And I, I have a background of a family history of addiction problems. And what you learn in Al-Anon, which is the support group for, it's not AA, which people are familiar with, it's actually the support group for the family members of the alcoholic. So you can learn to take care of yourself and make the right decisions is the idea of codependency. And codependency is, for good reasons, you're codependent to the addiction. You're providing the money because you hope one day they'll change their mind. You're providing them a place to stay because you don't want them to be out in the rain. But you're supporting the behavior of the addiction. And you really have to be, and you learn to be in that, to be harsh to the loved ones around you, which is honestly one of the hardest things that anybody who's felt addiction will know this pain. You have to send them back out to the tent. And you have to tell them that, You'll be the first to take them to treatment. You'll be the first to do those sort of things because you love them, but you're not going to give them any money, and you're not the place that they can stay between places to stay while they're in the throes of addiction. You're there when they need, as soon as they need it, to go to be treated, but you're not helping them. In a lot of cases for people, police are this role. They get arrested for dealing drugs, and they get put in prison for three months or six months, and they can detox forcefully, not pleasantly, but they can detox and then have perspective to make logical decisions to build back their life. But nobody sits there on the street and just comes to a eureka moment yeah. where they're on a bunch of drugs. Right. And now, so the, the politics of it is to say that you only need social services. You'll remove the police, and the social services will cure the situation. But the drugs create a highly violent culture of theft and robbery. We've had murders in these places, rapes and assaults. And so you, you social workers aren't safe to do their job. Right. So, okay, let's let's zoom out for a second, because if you're listening to this in the future, like 2022, whatever, uh, you might not understand the world of 2018, right? I could totally see how somebody could be in the future and not really understand the paradigm that we just exited with these cities, which was essentially that um, cause that's, I saw the ghost of that in that, in that documentary. Like the ghost mm -hmm. of the, the paradigm that we just left. Which was, okay, we're, we're all gonna live, we're, we're all gonna move back into the city now, and, and this is how we're gonna live, and it's gonna, life is one big episode of Friends, right? Or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And that's just not what ended up happening. But so you end up with these uh, overpriced housing and overpriced, uh, you know, whatever. And, you know, like we treat our city, we used to treat our cities like they were, uh, I say like they were Disneyland. 
which turns out might have been a stupid idea. And one of the reasons we did that was because ne we never thought, you know, nobody ever thought, you know, five, ten years ago, you, that, you know, very, very soon something might come along and we might discover that actually we don't need knowledge workers to come back into the city, right? They can do that from home. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was that, that documentary, that's kind of what they were talking around. They, they were talking around the edge of, like, if they don't fix this, unlike the other times, it might never get better. And and I would parallel that into Detroit and labor in general. So the the white flight in, in different times or just the flight from the downtown cores. So when you have this negative pressure, right, you have this negative current that's that's pressuring your community. You have a bunch of people on drugs, camping in the streets, destroying property, robbing houses. And I, I always flinch because people are like, well, it's just a tent they stole. I don't know if you've ever had anybody steal something for you, but there's a huge violation of community and safety and that comes with that. There's also been a whole lot of studies where, like, somebody might steal your tent and then they might graduate to, you know, something sure. else. Right? Because even know. if there isn't the fear of that, it itself makes the, the, the tent not the loss. The sense of security is what's really damaged, right? The tent, right. a couple hundred bucks, whatever. It's the idea that your home isn't safe anymore. Your neighborhood isn't safe anymore. Your community isn't safe anymore. Right. And so the people with needs, the people you're saying information technologies, the people with skills leave the community. Communities are tax revenue. The resources to do things is based on the livelihood and affluence of the people in them. So you create this community of violence and drugs. The people who are not wanting to be a part of that leave. Your money to fix the violence and drugs goes down, and you can end up with these barren cores to cities. You know, it's not, the, it's not yeah. it sounds like Atlanta's developing, Seattle's developing. So it didn't have these problems. But Detroit, the last industry to have people move out, those type of cities, it gets taken over by this rot of of negative economic pressure, lack of resources, drugs and violence and crime, and then you get organized gangs, and you you end up the downward cycle of a city, right? And that comes from the phrase of the documentary, the fight for the soul of Seattle. If you're going yeah. to make a third of your city the haven, the free pass ground for addicts, then it creates this very negative cycle that that core of the city rots out. You know, I don't think people appreciate the yeah. ancestral, like you're saying, roots earlier, the ancestral building to create these communities we have. We don't think about the fact that it's generations of people that build these communities, build on top of each other to create these safe Well, and the, the other thing that occurred to me watching this documentary was I don't know if you've ever seen The Wire, but it I heard to me. I mean to see it. Okay, well, so this isn't about. Well, actually, it is because there's a there's a whole there's a whole plot point in one of the seasons of The Wire, maybe two. I'm not even really sure, but there's a whole like not even an episode, like a whole arc essentially. Mm -hmm. Where the, the people of the, the police of Baltimore or one of the police precincts of Baltimore in particular, 
decide to turn part of Baltimore into a drug into a drug uh, free fire zone. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the in the in the storyline, what happened was, you know, the rest of Baltimore was totally fine. Yeah. You know, probably and, better. They got more police. Well, right. But remember now, this is fiction, right? And yeah. what you're seeing in, in Seattle is, I mean, like not that. It, it's not. It, you know, <laughs> but, but the thing, and this is where, I guess, and I hate to use this term, but the media, all right. So this is where, like, I'm looking at these people. Like, I'm looking at the, the politicians they're talking to, right? And I'm like, you know what, son? I bet you, you, I'm looking at you. You saw The Wire. You got this idea from The Wire. Like, you you know, yeah. that person is of the age that they could have seen, that they probably did see The Wire. And I'm like, I mean, I haven't, <laughs> uh, I have an episode I just put out a couple weeks ago, that, or last week, that is about don't forget that the media's job is to sell you a narrative to make you click. It's not to inform you. It's not to give you the truth or the right perspective or the best perspective on politics. It is about giving you outrage or something that offends you or something that calls you to tune in the next day. But I mean, everything is always charged. Right. But I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm literally watching this documentary, getting ready to talk to, you know, Mm -hmm. Jacob Edgar King about, and with completely without, any bias at all, I immediately thought, I'm looking. After, like, the third person that's, like, in their 30s or maybe early 40s, I'm like, oh, God, you saw the wire. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Oh, boy. Sometimes history is stranger than fiction. (laughs) People always bug me about fiction, and I'm like, I like reading history because it's even weirder than your shows. Because, I mean, you can watch, when you're watching the wire, it's, I mean, it's a great show, but it's like, as like the adult in me watches it, and I'm like, that's not, you couldn't do that in real life because of X, Y, Z, yada, yada. And I'm not just talking about a cop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think, but then in Seattle, we have, we have the police told by the council to not enforce drug laws, to not enforce drug sales laws, to not enforce criminal laws associated with that. They, in fact, aggressively try to not report it or classify it as crime so that they can say that they're, they've overseen more right. crime, even though everybody living there is in a mass of crime and property theft against them. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's crazy to think that something that you'd watch on a television show is like, nah, that, that couldn't happen to me. I'm in the city where it is happening. Well, but, okay, yeah, but, there, I mean, there was other things I noticed that that I could relate to, like, in, in, not in my city, but when I lived in Atlanta, um, there's a city uh, that shall remain nameless. There's a city that was very affluent, that yep. uh, shall remain nameless, that was above my city, almost directly above it. Um, and they got caught fudging their crime statistics. Like, they essentially, and it's weird how they were caught, because they got caught because they outsourced, well, let's call it what it is, they privatized their police, 
Okay. Okay. And the police didn't know they weren't supposed to. The police actually, those police that they were private actually reported the real number of times people called 911. Because <laughs> they yeah, didn't know. Contract. They probably get paid for response time or response. Well, what, but they didn't know, like, oh, we're supposed to protect the property values. And the way you do that is, uh-huh. oh, but I remember, I remember going to a party at, in this town, and I remember, like, we heard what everybody thought was a gunshot. Now, again, this is an affluent, you know, situation, right? We, we heard what everybody in the house thought was a gunshot. So we call the police. I promise you the policeman shows up, and we had... About four of us had the strangest conversation I've ever had with a police officer in my life. Where the police officer was like, are you, you didn't hear a gunshot. Are you sure? Are you sure you heard a gunshot? It's going to involve paperwork if you're sure. And like, and we took, and it wasn't, I mean, it was, it wasn't a car backfiring. It wasn't whatever. It was, you know, I heard, you know, I heard a gunshot. But we, you know, I'm like, oh. And then I thought about that, like, a couple months later when they got popped. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> you know? it, it, I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, for me, it's why, you know, especially with the stats I choose to use, how I take in information, why I'm hypercritical on a lot of documentaries is because, you know, you can manipulate stats very easily. Good stats are predictive. Bad stats are not. And it really affects, you know, for a lot of these issues that this documentary brings up with with disparities and equality, it really affects, you know, if you diagnose it wrong, you can't cure the disease. And so when you use these bad stats to make yourself feel better or a bad theory that doesn't really give you what the problem is, then the things you think that are going to cure it are not going to be medicine. Hopefully, they're not poison, but they're definitely not going to be medicine. And that becomes the problem with a lot of this is you can, we're this laboratory now of this ridiculously far theory. And we get to live with the consequences, and the consequences could truly be, and I've told people around where I live, Seattle is on the way to be the downtown core like Detroit. And my family's from that area of the Midwest. So I've driven through there, and when somebody tells me you can buy a house in Detroit for $10,000, I have an image of what that looks like. You don't want to buy it. So that's what we're trying – that's what we have on the line yeah. in this theory. And so it's hard to me because people buy into this, and I'm like, if you're wrong, the consequences are enormous. Well, and here's the other – I mean, here's the thing that to me would be so frustrating, Right. Like, okay, yeah, okay. I do actually have addiction in my family, and, I, you know, there's part, there's a huge part of me that totally gets it. Huge, huge part. Mm-hmm. But there's another part that says the people that came up with this theory, at the end of the day, I, I almost can guarantee you, right, they're not really from there, really. Like, that's not their real home. You know what I'm saying? Like somewhere in the back of their lizard brain, they're thinking if this doesn't work out, see, I can go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, it's not that they don't feel that it's their 
home is that they have the affluence to leave if it goes wrong. And that's that's like, okay, so I live in Atlanta, or I, when I lived in the city proper of Atlanta, you'd go to parties, or you'd go here, or you'd go there, and you'd meet people. And like they would say things like, for example, like I had a buddy who was, so I had a buddy who was going to art school, so I would go to a lot of art openings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd go to a ton of art openings. And you'd meet these people, and they would all, not all of them, but you'd meet a few people that would say, um, yeah, so we live in the town, we live in town so we can go to the High Museum of Art. Or we live in the town because Jim likes the Braves. Or we, you know, and we want to be close to the Braves. And not the metro area, mind you, but actually the city, right? Or we live in the mm-hmm. town because so-and-so likes the whatever amenity. Okay, well, when the coronavirus hit, oh, and let me, let me back up again. So I used to spend a whole lot of time with the demographics of Metro Atlanta, like the demographic data of Metro Atlanta. I used to be very conversant in that. And one of the things that you would see with your naked eye would be like the city proper, the population at night, when it got to Thursday at about 3 o'clock, from Thursday about 3, 4 o'clock, all the way to Monday, the the city proper population would plummet even at night. Mm. And I remember saying to somebody, I was saying to a lot of people, I would be really curious to see what the population of of the city of Atlanta is from 6 o'clock on Thursday to 5.30 a.m. on Monday. Because I bet you anything it would be a different population. And I said, I'm not talking about the workers now. I'm talking about the people that live here, right? Yeah, could be. (laughs) Anyway, so the pandemic hit. Turns out we were all right, (laughs) and a whole lot of people went somewhere else all at once. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't know Atlanta, but in Seattle, you commute in. So, like, the greater Seattle commuting in, Seattle stretches for a good distance. Like, I live two towns over, I guess. Although I don't, I don't, I work in a town that's a suburb of Seattle. So like I, I skirt the edges of Seattle, but I don't actually go into Seattle. The, yeah. When you don't have to travel because of COVID, all that, all that commuting that we have, because we have these sprawling cities just breaks apart. You don't, you, you, now you don't have that link to necessarily make that city a core like it was. Well, also you can, I mean, almost by the week, you can really see where, you know, if, if they would just run da 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 up into my neighborhood, I might never have to go to the tower again. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Seattle, because of the tech industry, is, was already wired almost everywhere, so it was no big deal. Like, a lot of those companies already had people working remotely, so it, it but it, it could change. I mean, it's kind of the thing I'm waiting to watch is does it change when when COVID, if the vaccines work and it starts to go back, does a lot of these people still work distanced or do they come back in? I would I would love to work my job distance. I'd move to Hawaii or San Diego or somewhere nice and enjoy that part of the country. <laughs> yeah. Not have to worry about a homeless problem in the city next to me when I go downtown. Well, right. I mean, like, it's, and- it's to the point where, like, I wouldn't send somebody to most of those places, but places like sitting right down there. You go to a sports game. You, you I pay for parking now because I, I used to. I don't know if you, you know, you go to a sports game before. Take the train, yeah. And what was called the International District of, of Seattle, which was 
a good couple miles, and we would walk to the stadium. And I don't even think of it now. Like, I don't want to walk through that. I would park right at the stadium and spend that money. And I'm usually really cheap with things like that, but I'm like, I don't even want to deal with it. So, like, just drive down, park, yeah. and you can get right off the freeway and get right back on, and I don't have to interact with any of that. All right, let's try and – can we try and get some kind of a timeline? Because I remember – like, I remember early on in the pandemic, I remember reading the stories about it. It was like it was not – I felt like it wasn't that big a deal. Well, but, I have a weird perspective on the pandemic because one of my coworkers is from Wuhan, China. So we oh. were hearing about this in November, how they closed the city and, like, thousands of people were sick, which China still hasn't released. They shut down the entire city weeks earlier than they said so and had the people who were from there talking about, like, all sorts of people sick, which they claim there were 90 deaths, which, mm-mm. Not a chance. So I was hearing about it, but I, it, I, it took me until the rest of the country to realize it was a thing here. Yeah, but no, as far as like the, uh, I guess like the Seattle tent city protest, Chaz chop situation. Mm-hmm. So when did that start up? So the tent cities, there. So the first tent cities, called lovingly called the jungle where there were a couple murders and different things that took place. So Seattle is the interchange of I-90, which goes from Seattle to Boston on the east coast of the United States, and I-5, which goes from the Canadian border north of Seattle all the way down to San Diego on the Mexican border. And so it's a major interstate interchange, and there isn't a whole lot of major other interstates in the western part. It's not as dense as some of the traffic stuff in the central part of the country. And so this is one of the this is the only major one in our state, then tell you down into California. So there's these huge overpasses, and underneath it is like grass and different stuff owned by the state. And so that got packed with the opioid crisis. And that wasn't I wouldn't say that that was fundamentally different. You know, has its own flavor regionally, but it wasn't fundamentally different than most cities around the country's opioid crisis. And then probably about four or five years ago, the council started with all these policies that instead of kind of having it contained there and it's kind of a free-for-all, and if you step out and you're doing stuff, crime or pitching a tent on somebody's sidewalk, they're going to move you or put you, arrest you, do whatever, if you're going to openly sell drugs in the city. But they started deciding in that period that they were going to make tent cities, that they were going to make, uh, RV parks, because they'll trick out an RV that barely works. They can roll somewhere to be like a pseudo home, although it breaks down quickly and can't be moved. And then they kind of live in and out of filth, you know, in there. It's not a homeless problem. They're in these throes of addiction, and they're getting high, getting high, getting high, stealing. And it just, you know, gets used up and becomes this filth place you wouldn't even want to enter with a hazmat suit. And so they decided they would put plots of land so they could all park there with their RVs and that they wouldn't use the police to enforce any crimes, stop any drug dealers, or do anything like that. And so once that happened, you, you have the – and the, they're giving out supplies and different things to these sites. It drew all – anybody who could come here heard that Seattle was giving out stuff. So we started to inherit not only our own opioid epidemic, but – 
a lot of the cities on those interstates and some of the neighboring cities that were more affluent would also bus people to Seattle, buy them a ticket or arrest them, give them their choice. And so Seattle drew everybody's problem regionally into there. And it doesn't take all of the problem, but it took a share of everybody's problem. Seattle's also a temperate climate. You know, right now the Northeast is in, you know, a blizzard. We might see it snow a couple days out of the year. Most of our winter is rainy and 50 like it is today. Our summers get up to about 90. If you're into the 90s, it's like major heat wave. So, Living on the street in the tent in our climate isn't that bad. And so it's a good place to have that lifestyle. It's a good place because the government's supporting that lifestyle. And so it just swelled over the last four or five years into now that it, like I described, it's the southern third. But now it's getting to the point that basically any park around the city has got somebody in the tent. Any green space that was between, like, some roads has got people I mean, you drive through the freeway and everywhere where there used to be like plants on the side of the road is tents all over the place or the remnants of somebody who is there. And any corner corner area on the off-ramp to a highway, same thing, parks, back areas of them. I mean, it's just everywhere now, overwhelmingly so. Responses to only use, you know, that ideology, and for me, I'm somebody who thinks of them as tools, right? I don't, I'm probably more conservative. I don't consider myself Republican because I don't agree with the party. But ideologically, I'm more conservative with it. But I also understand that ultra-conservatism is about as stupid, right? That's where you get the decision that you're going to cut all social services arbitrarily because the problem will go away. Instead, you have the other side, which is we'll only use social services and cut all other uh, police functionality around it, and, and the crime won't be a big deal. And so you, you just have – now you have everybody's problem. You have the same amount of resources. They're stretched worse and thin. And, I mean, it, it shows in the documentary, and you can do this. The courthouse they talk to, I've been on jury duty there. And, like, Ben, you're, you're harassed going around it. You're trying to get in there. They closed one of the exits specifically for that, for the security reasons that that was it. And it's just everywhere around there is people selling drugs, obviously, in front of you and, like, doing things that yeah. don't aren't a civilized society. Like, you can't have a business in an area where you can just get broken into whenever somebody feels like it. I mean, they talk about that guy that moved out in the documentary who has had his place broken into three or four times a week. Yeah, and they were, I mean, what was that, rocks? Or they were throwing something in his window. Yeah, they get a brick or something. Because, you know, a store window, I mean, a lot of people, getting in my little construction background here, a lot of people don't realize, like, your house window is like a double-plane insulation window. But a lot of the time a showroom like that will be like your car windshield where it, like, cracks but doesn't break. So you can't, like, go up and hit it with something. It'll punch a hole and it'll keep his integrity. And so you have to get, like, a big brick and break into it and then get the whole thing to fold over, and then you're into the store. You kind of saw that. I mean, you guys probably didn't, but with some of the looting with the – I don't want to say with the Black Lives – the looters that happened to be there with the Black Lives Matter protesters, yeah. you see that where they cave in the, the storefronts. That's what they have to do. So they need some sort of object to shatter it, to cave it in. And so they go in, they throw, you know, a brick against it and get it all broken and, and get into there. And to me, it's just sad because, you know, the community is not 
especially in Seattle, it's not like the community is hostile to helping. I mean, they're voting for the people that are coming up with these ultra-social service policies. But once you're the victim of these things, it's, and you can see the people in there heartbroken, the city that they once lived in being violated by that violence against yeah. their belongings breaks them of the idea that that place exists. And they ended up leaving because that the thing that they thought was their home and roots and community turned out to be a fabrication. It was something well, that they imagined. The thing that that I think I'm looking at, you know, now uh, in the world that was before, I call it before times. The before <laughs> 2020 times. Yeah, the before time. Uh, the thing I'm looking at is we got into this really weird idea that you could turn cities into Disney World and that would be fine. And like there's no there's no staples. There's no you know, like like I used to live in Atlanta. I used to live in the in a food desert, but for the opposite reason. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the the place was too opulent for the grocery store. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't. Never used the grocery store. Yeah, right. There were a lot of people. I guarantee you, in Atlanta, there were. And actually, this is true. Um, Atlanta eats out more per capita than anywhere in America. Just about it. I'm not too surprised because of lifestyle, right? So, a family unit lifestyle where you get married when you're 20, you get kids, or 18 or 16, depending. But you you get married quickly. You have a family unit of three to five people requires that store, right? I've actually penciled some of this out in our area with, with a friend who was like, I eat out too much, but I'm like, it's actually cheaper for himself and his household of, of one to eat out. If you go buy uh, a, a sub, you know, a sub sandwich, lunch meat and the lettuce and tomato, and yeah. you cut it all up and make it, it's more expensive than going to Subway, right? And so it's actually how it was setting up economically. You wouldn't eat out all the time. It was cheaper to go to Chipotle or Subway or McDonald's than it was to right. buy food. I mean, it's one of the big problems of poverty. I mean, they, they talk about like, well, you know, they just eat McDonald's in the, in the ghetto or whatever, you know, stuff like that. And it's actually because that's the most, that's the best way to stretch their money. It's not because they're stupid and think that a diet of McDonald's is good for them. It's because... That's the cheapest, most amount of food that they can get. Yeah, so I you remember end up buying McDonald's, and you can't support a grocery store because you can't afford that. Yeah, I remember like when I used to um, when I used to tutor home, or they weren't technically homeless; they were housing challenged. I, I, I don't know what the word these days is. But living in halfway houses or charities, or, you know, well, what you know, like right, 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 essentially, but. They would always, they would almost always, they would be eating Snickers bars mm-hmm. because the Snickers bar accidentally had like peanuts and you know, it's and it very was filling. Food for the cost. Yeah, it was filling. But and, and I was gonna say, for part of me, it's always troubling because like homeless and what Seattle is facing are very different. Seattle is homeless. There's resources to deal with it, like you're talking about, probably like you worked in. This is addiction. This is addiction problems of opioids that we have, as a country, basically turned a blind eye to. 
unless you have been affected by it, I don't hear people talking about it. It wasn't even really an issue in our presidential election, even though it's killed more people than COVID has over a longer period of time, but it's killed far more people. But it's just not a front-burner issue. It's never been a front-burner issue because I think we associate addiction with uh, weakness and not a disease. So we associate addiction with a character flaw or a weakness. They weren't strong enough, and they're rock bottom, but they're choosing not to leave. You know, they're out in the street. Who would decide to live out on the street? But you have to put yourself. Their, their, their brain chemistry is currently chemically changed. They have to get off the drug before they can make logical decisions. And we don't develop a system to help people back. So you get clean, and you're back on the street, and you can't get a job, and you don't see a path to getting a home or getting back to a normal, you know, a normal life. Why would that person not fall back into drugs? So selling drugs maybe first or getting back into because that's the skills they've developed. So we don't do a good job of of holding. You need both, and that's the part that's so frustrating to me because our politics feels like it's one or the other. You need police to create the safe environment that the general community can live in, and you need them to take off the addicts that are so far down that they're living in a jungle of tents and violence. Okay. You use drugs yeah. every day, and you take them out, and you control the violence, and then you back it up with social programs. All right. So talk to, there was a six-block area that um, mm-hmm. basically this precinct was ordered to relinquish, and it was terrible, and blah, blah, blah. But Chaz, what I chop, yeah, ch- chop chance, whatever. What I didn't know until I saw the uh, the video was that actually that was just the epicenter. Like, that wasn't all of it. That was just the epicenter. That was just, like, the the store. So, and Chaz is more, has more to do with Black Lives Matter than it does opioids and homeless. So, the things work together. As you hollow out with this addiction, the tax revenue, as was explained before, hollows out. And so, the people who are just poor and can't leave then get trapped in a violent, drug-ridden community. And so a lot of the, the, the call to desperation of Black Lives Matter, the call of just do something about this, comes from not the drug person in the tent. The person in the tent didn't get up and march. They're drugged out. The person that has to live and is trapped next to the person in the tent, that's the person saying, our cops come in here and bust me. They're violent and already for, uh, they're looking for violence. They're desperate and they're coming to call. In those protests, a subset, a splinter of the Black Lives Matter protests decided that they wanted this autonomous region without government, without police, without government, without anything that they would manage and it would be utopia. And so they went to a precinct and they protested it and demanded these things. And the city council decided they would abandon the police precinct. And effectively, because of that, they're abandoning the ability for the police to police that area. And so CHOP formed, they formed these signs, they did these things. Now, no one that lived, owned, or had property or shops or businesses within that area got any choice. The city council just gave them up. So a bunch of people who were not necessarily living in that area took over the management of that area. And there were people who were out there who had basic medical skills who were truly trying to make this into something. 
But in this process and in the video shows, a young teenager, maybe 20, so he might not be a teenager, got shot. And when the paramedics came with a police escort, because there's obviously this autonomous zone and the different protests that we saw, the protesters actually stopped the paramedics from going. The paramedics were trying to say, we're trying to go to a 911, somebody shot, we're trying to help them, this is our police escort, we'll be gone as soon as we get to this person, we're just trying to go help this person. And the, there's some videotapes you can find out online. The, the protesters weren't the peaceful day protesters protesting about Black Lives Matter. This was a pretty hostile group shouting, jeering, physically moving around to block the paramedics. And while this happened, this kid bled to death. And they, they, they finally, somebody drove him to the hospital, but by that time it was too late and bled to death and died. And this was because the city council just decided to give up part of the city for another experiment. And so it's, it's just, you know, it's chaos. You, you get a call of desperation out of desperation. People are desperate because of horrible yeah. circumstances in their life. And what you do is you abandon all structures of society and give them chaos. And you think somehow that you're going to get a positive outcome from this. Like, to me, it's just amazingly baffling. But instead of saying the person, the, the people protesting are desperate, how do we respond to their needs? We take their words as literal gospel and give them that as if it's the medicine that they need. And it's to me, it's just mind blowing to watch. Which made me wonder. I mean, which made me actually kind of wonder. Was I mean, they said in the video it was like libertarianism and and it's like what? How do they put it? Like libertarianism and. and a toxic mix of libertarianism and kindness was what somebody yeah. said. I mean, it, that, that's a generous way of saying it. Of these people wanted this full libertarian liberty that would become utopia, and you were like, "Sure, we'll give it to you, and hopefully, you get it." Like it wasn't like they were. It was like the city council was like, "Yeah, we know that kid will die when we sign it." They were like, "Oh, you're demanding these things, and we'll give them all to you, and try to try to make it do these things that you're saying." To me, it's. It's just a failure of leadership. It's political, right? Somebody protests and demands a thing. Politically, like, we give them the thing, we get a thumbs up. Leadership, when people are complaining, you're not listening to the literal words of the complaint, right? Even in customer service, you're not listening to the words of the complaint. It isn't important that that sheet be burned in the hotel that the person's complaining about. It's important that you listen to the complaint and you make a better system so that they don't have that problem. That you do something, and maybe maybe you give them something else for their trouble. But you don't you don't get a person that complains, and you literally do everything they're asking for. It's crazy land to me. But yeah, that I mean, is. I would just the, the documentary says it's kindness to me. I think it's cruelty. I don't think it's kindness. I think when you look back at Seattle, just like the documentary does say later on. You're not going to see somebody in a tent on the street and look at a government that allowed that and say that they were compassionate and kind. You're going to say that they're cruel and heartless. Well, well the person, politician. I mean, the, the person they were interviewing and not the narrator, the narrator said it was heartless mm -hmm. and cruel. Yeah. The person said a toxic mix of mm -hmm. kindness and the word toxic there. <laughs> it's kind of like. Yeah, it's, toxic <laughs> kindness is a weird uh, marriage of, of words, right? Yeah, no, but I mean, the thing, I mean, this actually comes from the, that there was a whole school of thought that if you do nothing with drug addiction, it will eventually mm -hmm. sort itself out. Which, which um, is the antithesis of, of 
a 12-step, AA, Al-Anon, none of them say that. In fact, you need action, but the actions aren't codependent actions. You need actions that are a path somewhere else. I'll take you to treatment. I won't give you a hundred bucks. You can't stay here while you're high or in the throes of addiction. But as soon as you need to go to treatment, I'll drive you. I'll stop whatever in my life and I'll take you there. That's separating those lines. The problem is that the the government is being codependent with this addiction. That's the issue. Like the police, the police aren't there to go crack somebody's head for the sake of cracking their head. They're to find the person in a pile probably of their own vomit taking taking narcotics with a bunch of needles sticking out of them and say, you've hit the bottom of acceptability in, and put you in prison for six months. Then you can get clean. Then you can be in the right mindset. And I'm not an advocate of huge, long drugs. I like, you know, to me, the crack and, and powder thing of the 70s is atrocious. Like, I don't understand how you put somebody in prison for a decade for possession. But but if, if they're not willing to go to treatment, you put them in prison for six months so that when they get out, they can make a decision. They can't make a decision on heroin on an alley in Seattle. They're not going to come to that they've hit rock bottom. They've been at rock bottom. They're living rock bottom. They're living... They're going to die from drugs or something in their life is going to undrug them temporarily so they can make a decision. That's right. where they're sitting. They're now, not okay. sitting in a state where they get better. Okay, now let's widen this out a little bit. How this has become this driver for this moment, it's a very local moment, has become a driver for a political dialogue in the, in the country. Um how do people feel about that? How do people over there feel about that? I think I think we're a little self. Uh, we don't really care. Like it's our politics, so it's weird when somebody comes and says it's a bigger <laughs> thing, right? So somebody comes down there and like Georgia's all about Trump and Biden, and you're like, well, not really. And I don't need to know about Georgia to know that politics are always local, right? So, I mean. They always use us for news clips, and what happens is what happens everywhere is they try to point to the side they don't agree with and say how crazy they are, and the news should show how crazy they are, and they think that themselves are these super uh, rational people that are curing everything. So it's the same sort of, like, political dialogue yeah. you all over. But it's, I mean, it's but, weird because, like, I drive to work, and most days out of the year are fine, and these events that you're seeing are, like, ten days out of the year, right? So it's... Yeah. I mean, both of us have... Political. I mean, both of us have political science uh, education, mm-hmm. and um, I learned, and I'm sure you did too, that all politics are local. But I think the national reaction to this proves that no, all politics aren't local. I mean, anymore. I mean they aren't, but but you pull <laughs> your narrative into your local politics, right? So yeah, yeah. a lot of the reasons that you're political in a national way have to do with those roots that you're talking about, right? You grow up in a certain area, you grow up with certain beliefs, you're probably going to fall into a certain political mindset nationally. So, so you can explain do you think, the national with the local. Do you think this is going to cause uh, Washington State to flip? Like as if Seattle no. continues to decay? <laughs> well, we have a terrible uh, voting system in the state. So, uh, as I as I know now, because of your guys as senators who have an election, your guys' general election has lots of candidates. Our primary election is a top two runoff, 
to the to the general election. Does that make sense? So the primary has all the different candidates, and the top two, regardless of party, go to the general election. So if you're running okay. for a position in eastern Washington, there's two Republicans that make the top. They end up the top two on your general election ballot. And it's the same way in, in you know, Seattle area. It's going to be two Democrats. What this does is really codify power, power to parties. So there really wouldn't be a circumstance where you're going to see a Republican get enough votes to rank in Seattle to flip the power. What you could see is more moderate Democrats winning in those primaries and winning in the general elections, where you could swing the narrative from left Democrats to right Democrats. And that's what some of our prior governors were. So if you go back in, say, about 10 years, you had um, Gregoire was our governor, and she was very, she was an attorney general. She would be a lot more like the mold of Harris, where she was a prosecutor, attorney general, she was very bureaucratic. She honestly was kind of boring, though I, I voted for her and liked how she ran it because she was very technocratic. She did a good job. She just I don't know. I'm, I'm getting to like boring politicians. I don't. <laughs> People might after Trump, right? And she was really smart because in our geography, you have Seattle, right, this huge city. But she would actually get a lot of the money to go to cities like Spokane, that's a smaller city east of the mountains, and do the infrastructure part projects for part of the freeway to be able to move our, our grown goods because the eastern part of Washington is uh, apples and potatoes and grows all sorts of wine and stuff. So she did a lot of projects that actually made her really popular or at least po- uh, popular enough with Republicans that her second election, after a very close one, she just dominated because she was actually winning Spokane as a Democrat, which is unheard of. I mean, it would be like, you know, Atlanta's a little weird, but pick a different, really, really hard red city in Georgia. Macon. It'd be like, Macon. Yeah, it would be like that voting for a Democrat, because that Democrat was doing a really good job with the nuts and bolts, basically. And so she actually won a lot of that sort of stuff. And before that, we had Locke, who was very much that way. So we used to be very um, moderate Democrat. We were hard, hard Democrat, but we were generally business moderate Democrats for a lot of our history. It's only recently that we've gotten this really far left ideological democratic control of cities. And it's really just the city. You guys got to see our governor uh, lose really hard in the uh, Democratic presidential debate a couple of times. But he's generally, um, he's very, I don't have a great opinion, he's very politician, but he's not an ideologue like that. So he's not, he's not going far right with necessarily stuff. He's just very a very politician, so he'll say whatever that gets in the next thing, but he's not moving yeah. the government that way. It's really just Seattle that's doing this. And so that's where you get, like, that clash, you know. Yeah. You mentioned, like, the, the big clashes where you get the big blue wave protesting the next day outside of City Hall after the Black Lives Matter. And then the media grabs that and does it as this large portrayal. But to us here, it's, it's how our politics are here, so it's not sensational. It's revolutionary if somebody hasn't seen it. You're like, whoa. But to us, it's like, oh, yeah. Well, the Democrats are out there protesting, so, of course, the Republicans will be here next week to do their rally. Well, I just think, I mean, I feel like it must have turned. The worm must have turned, so so to say, because um, I remember earlier on, I know a lady who lives out there, right? And her husband was all, like, I was talking to him, and, he was all, no, this is the most Seattle thing ever. It's it, it's no big deal I mean, with, with the chop and jazz. 
Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. It, Initially, it was the brother. It was the like season of love with how people were interpreting. Uh, like they 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 looked at it and coded it as a hippie thing. Yeah, this would be like a Woodstock thing. People would have this great experience. It would come out with all these positives, and you know they didn't think it would be forever, but they would they would show how it could be run. Then the police, you wouldn't need them as much. It would further the political argument. But police are just you could cut half of it and you wouldn't lose a thing, and you could. You know, you could figure out these ways to work government better that could be used to make this new whole Seattle. I mean, it was thought of like a positive petri dish. And it wasn't that bad. Like, essentially, if you owned or lived there, your property suddenly wasn't yours. That's unpleasant. But it wasn't this like, <laughs> horror show it was portrayed as, you know. It, it got associated with the riders of the courthouse in Portland who were trying to just burn stuff. And Portland is a big city in Oregon, which is the state south to us. And it's right near the border of Washington and Oregon. And so they there were having these anarchists, and we have those. So before Black Lives Matter, we had anarchists who love to come here because we generally don't bring out the clubs quickly. And so when WTO met here, they, they vandalized, like, a big part of the downtown. And May Day is often has... And again, like most of these things, the daytime is cool, protest, peaceful things, which go to if that's your thing. And I'm glad there's Americans who are passionate about those issues, but that at night, the anarchists come out to, to wreck town because they want to. And that's sort of the same thing. Well, I don't know about anarchists, but it's kind of the same thing going on in my city. In the daytime, mm-hmm. you would have, and then at night, you know, Blah, blah, blah. People are there to, to cause trouble, and people get trapped there. It's not like everybody's that, but it gets wrapped right. up in that trouble. You get, and especially, like, I mean, especially, like, in the beginning, where, like, mm-hmm. you know, you might not think. Like, one thing that... Yeah. The one thing night, in, there's no violence. You don't you think there's going to be violence. Yeah. Um, one thing, like, in my city, I remember this, the radio, the the, the public... So, like, the public, the PBS station, radio station, was all like, so today we're going to have, there's going to be a George, a George Floyd um, demonstration uh, in downtown Atlanta at this time. Okay. Yeah. And that went off, you know, no problem. No problem. Peaceful. No Across problem. Country. Amazing. And then, like, it was even, it wasn't even that night. It was like... Was it, it was a couple of nights later that it, and it was felt like a wave. It started in, I think it was the first or second night we had violence in Minneapolis, but that's a whole history of Minneapolis where there was a lot more tension and different stuff. Yeah. But it started just creeping into different cities a couple of nights later, right? And we had them from the start because we have them whenever we have a protest for anything. And they're not, and I hate because depending on what media you watch, it gets associated with Black Lives Matter's protests. The daytime, super friendly, super American, awesome that people can do this in our system, awesome that people want to do this. Yeah. Regardless of your politics, it's awesome that people can protest peacefully, and it's amazingly American. At night... It's, Ameri- it's literally America more American than apple pie. Yeah, it's like, literally more American than apple pie. It's a, it's a, 
you know, you can argue. I am somebody who thinks that America has, is an amazing history. There are definitely dark things and things that should be explained as mistakes, should be explained as things that we chose the nation to do that we shouldn't have. But I think the progress in history, it's an amazing art, right? 4,000 right. years of history before is a system of slavery that no one had ever written down the concept that humans have rights in a government system to the point today where we're becoming an interracial, multicultural society that could only be compared to the glory days of Rome. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't have problems and challenges to face. But that's how I see it. It's amazing to see people protest that our system does that because that means that we're challenging ourselves to be better. And I think it's amazing to see, regardless of how you feel on any of the politics associated with it. But then when people are there at night to just destroy stuff and because of the areas of the protest, usually the people that are protesting. And I don't know how it was in your area, but in our area, the politicians wouldn't even admit that there was violence for a week when you can clearly see it on the television show. Like, you tune into the news, they're breaking stuff. Where I live, Seattle had the protests. I live in a community that's away from there. The people here went there to protest together, obviously. And gangs found, would coordinated that week to target the shopping centers away from the protest. I found out later that the police knew ahead of time, but the politicians decided they wouldn't even use them. And I'm away from Seattle in the more conservative cities where, you know, usually they'd use, they would do something like that, but they didn't even want the optics to, to be able to say these differentiate. These people are damaging the community. I live closer to one of the communities that's poor and of color, and I live in a community that's 70, close to 70% of color. This is the community of the people protesting, asking for police to be better. And then the police are like, oh, gangs are going to target your businesses? We'll do nothing. Like, I can't even get it. I don't even understand the decision because an optic might be bad that you have to explain yourself. Like, it's just so frustrating to me. They're not saying they want the police yeah. cut in half, literally. They're saying they want the police to serve and protect them, and then you choose to not serve and protect. Like, I don't understand. Well, anyway... um, We've been at it for quite a while. Um, Always fun. Let me ask you this: and how, where do you think this is going to go in Seattle? Like, where do you think? Do you see it kind of a fork in the road? Outcomes. Okay. I think what you said, what you said earlier, a switch to, and given the constraints, a right Democrat. So a, a business operations, maybe boring technocrat like we used to have gets the reins back, and starts to work it back into place. Or they continue yeah. to let addiction hollow out our community, and you will have flight of anybody affluent enough, and you will see the Detroit, and, you know, white flight was the phrase for, for the, the history 50 years ago. Right? Yeah. Because it, there was a racial issue to it. But this isn't going to be white flight. This is going to be affluent flight. And so anybody who has the affluence is going to leave, the skill flight, basically. The people who won't have affluence are going to be people of minorities. Yeah. But it won't be based on a racial line. It will just affect racial based on affluence. And so you're going to see a hollowing out of the different areas there. You're going to see the businesses leave. As you see the businesses leave, the people that will trap are going to be in an area that doesn't have opportunity to go get a $10 an hour job to turn that into a 20. 
they're going to be in an area that has poor education and they're going to get hollowed out core. And so that's kind of what this documentary is about, right? It's the battle for the soul of the city. Do we want the city that we had for so long, defend, protect, and build that? Or are we allowing it to become a hollowed out, just like all the other times you can look in American history, city core that's hollowed, downtown core people travel into, like you say, and leave, on, leave otherwise, and a bunch of people trapped in that. Well, Jacob, uh, thanks a bunch. And hang on just a second. Let me unhook the recording.